Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I finally watched Fleabag. And? I liked it. I thought it was good. I can see why you had such a strong career as a reviewer there, (laughs) Mick. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I once broke a toe trying to get a knife out of a butternut squash. And I can see why you've had such a long career as a cook. (laughs) (laughs) What happened? Well, knives always get stuck in butternut squash. I, I, I right. agreed, yeah. Yeah, and obviously I grew up in a house where we didn't eat butternut squash, so I, I haven't got a nan or a mum trick to go to. So I thought if I get the knife and I sort of smash the butternut squash Fucking on hell. the side, the knife will go through it. And it didn't. It didn't. It just sort of bounced like off and onto my foot. Oh, that and hurts yeah. About. Oh, Jesus. And broke a toe. I mean, luckily it landed like butternut squash bit into my toe rather than full-on carving knife into my toe top tip for peeling a butternut squash is to put it in the microwave for three minutes before you start softens the skin that's good to know i don't have a microwave me neither i'm glad my (laughs) misfortune led to um that tip that none of us can use i have a microwave i know i know how to use it now because luke conran came around my house and showed me that's good And I'm Jen Offord, and I was on another podcast this morning. Traitor! Yeah. What was it? It was the it was the Telegraph's football podcast. How was it? It was all right. Listen out for it. Will do. Later on, I catch up with mental health writer Michelle Thomas about My Shit Therapist. That's the name of her new book, by the way. My counsellor was excellent. We chat to Frances Rideout, director of the Legal Advice Centre at Queen Mary's University London, about the work she's doing to help victims of image-based sexual abuse. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm chatting tennis and football as the Women's World Cup has finally kicked off. Hooray! There's a sneaky taster of one of this week's Sunday Chops with the absolute smasher that is Susan Kalman. And we're off to 2032 when Dunleavy Does Dystopia watches Demolition Man, <gasps> Sylvester Stallone knitting. Who, who knew? Who, what more is there? But first, peak Trump, all change and Nigel nonsense. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where hope that we might ever get a US visa again comes to die. Speaking of which, Donald Trump's visit to the UK has ended. Hooray! You'll not be surprised to learn he conducted himself with all the dignity of a monkey who discovers (laughs) masturbating while on a day trip to a convent. (laughs) Trump's ludicrousness seems so amplified when he's outside of America, you start to wonder if he hears it himself. Much like when ordering a drink in an American bar, even you get that you sound a bit... Barkeep, a mead for me and my countrymen, good sir, and don't tarry. (laughs) For me, peak Trump came, not when he was lying about the protesters, but when he dined at Buckingham Palace, turning up wearing a girdle that had a job about as tough as the safe confinement unit over Chernobyl. After giving a speech, written presumably in crayon, in which he called the Queen (laughs) a great, great woman, he broke royal (laughs) protocol by touching her on the back. Now, obviously, I don't care about protocol as much as I cared that it was a dumb, sexist and totally transparent attempt to be dominant. Plus, she's going to have to burn that dress now and it looked well expensive. How? Oh, I can't. I can't. (laughs) Incidentally, when I go to America and people ask where I'm from, I go, London! (laughs) Because I know it's what they want. I know it's what they want. (laughs) She constantly dresses as a chimney sweep. (laughs) (laughs) And so, Labour narrowly beat the Brexit party in the Peterborough by-election. 
And as much as the current political shit show feels a bit like watching someone making a shit sandwich and using shit instead of bread and then curling one out on top of it before force-feeding the nation, this is a big deal. Whatever problems people have with Labour right now, and oh, let me count the ways, the idea of Nigel Farage's non-party gaining traction in Parliament is terrifying. Also, nice sweeping in when he thought Brexit candidate Mike Green had won, but then creeping out before the count when he realised that wasn't the case. It's just genuinely proper funny. <laughs> did the willy of the PayPal feel chastened by defeat? Fuck no. The following day, he delivered a letter to Prime Minister Theresa May, demanding his party's involvement in the government's Brexit negotiations. Yeah, you heard me. Nigel Farage went to Downing Street the morning after losing an election to demand a role in negotiations that don't exist from a person who wasn't there. Mm. <laughs> Lovely stuff, Nigel. A change is as good as a rest, so the old saying goes, though MPs were working hard to disprove this last week, as more than half the MPs of the new political party Change UK jumped ship. Heidi Allen, Sarah Wollaston, Angela Smith, Luciana Berger, Gavin Shuka and Chucka Amana decided to leave the party following a disastrous campaign in last month's European Parliament elections, in which the party gained only 3.4% of the vote. The party was formed in February in response to the fuckwittery of Labour and the Conservatives in a bid to row back from the swivel-eyed loons on both sides of the political spectrum to a more centrist movement. But it's not gone as well for them as they might have hoped. Anna Soubry, one of the remaining five MPs, and the only one I could pick out of a lineup, spoke on Sunday of her disappointment at the defecting MPs, in particular Chucka Amana, who she said she felt had made a serious mistake. She added... I believed in him and believed he should be Prime Minister of our country. And Anna, that might just be why he left. Because mm-hmm. I reckon he might fancy himself as Prime Minister. Well, prime I'm Minister the, of what, though? Yeah. You need well, to be yeah. part of a party. Yeah, but he's going to be, be part minister. of a party, isn't he? He's not going to not be part of a party. Well, well, what party he's is he going to do be? something. What's he going to join the Tories? Maybe, who knows? The Tories wouldn't have him. Might join the Liberal Democrats. Just on a Liberal Democrat note... Vince Cable saying that the, the Tories had made a proper horlicks of Brexit. <laughs> Who knew that was? <laughs> oh, have you not heard of that? No, oh, really? it's a great minstone. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, don't think 3.4 is bad for a party that only recently existed. Yeah, with like 11 MPs. I, mean, I don't understand why they, they, they started a party in the first place. I think they would have been much more powerful as a group that agreed to vote together. Or a caucus. Thank you. As we like to say. <laughs> Anyway, good news this week for Sally Challen, her family, campaigners and potentially other victims of coercive control, as a judge ruled that the 65-year-old would not face a retrial for the killing of her husband Richard in 2010. At a press conference after the verdict, Challen said, My family have served my sentence with me. They have kept me going for a long and terrible nine years. I want also to thank my friends in and out of prison who have stood by me. The news was pretty widely well received, disregarding Brendan O'Neill, but shouldn't that always be the case? Women's Aid tweeted, fantastic news for Sally Challen. This is a testament to her son, David Challen's campaigning to raise awareness of her case and coercive control. If you don't know the background of the case, you can find out more on the internet. It's a much better use of my time to say here that if you are or you think you might be in an abusive relationship... Or if you're worried about a friend or a family member, you can find information and help at www.womensaid.org.uk. Absolutely. Anyone bleating on about having a straight pride, just stop. Seriously. 
And that also goes for anyone who thinks it's okay to tell, say, gay comedians that they don't need to bang on about their sexuality, which is something I've seen happen to Susan Kalman, Tom Allen and Susie Ruffle. No, just just no. In a world where people are questioning whether children should be taught in schools that gay people even exist and where someone can be stoned to death for who they want to sleep with, we're still a long fucking way to go. Last week, a lesbian couple on a London bus got the shit kicked out of them by a group of young men for refusing to kiss on demand. Melania Shemona and her girlfriend Chris refused to kiss and were beaten, robbed and left covered in blood. Five men aged between 15 and 18 have been arrested. It's not gay people's responsibility to be less gay, or in this case, to be gay for straight men's entertainment. It has to be straight people's responsibility to make sure this shit doesn't happen, to make sure it can't happen. And while we're teaching our kids this, we also need to teach them that female sexuality, gay or straight, doesn't exist purely for male pleasure. This pisses me off, because last week, everybody was busy mocking those ridiculous cups that Budweiser made. And rightly so. Yeah, well, exactly the point. But maybe it needs more than, like, gentle mocking. Maybe it needs people to actually say, you know what, I fell in about three different categories that were on those cups. There were all sorts of colours there for me, and I am a straight woman. I don't belong in the Pride movement. I don't think that being constantly asked at weddings why I haven't got married and why I don't want a partner is a hardship on a level with getting my head kicked in on a bus for refusing to kiss someone. And actually, if you do think that that is a hardship on the same level, I think you need to have a word with yourself. I don't need a grey stripe on a cup by Budweiser and we don't need a straight pride march. We just need to stop appropriating gay people's experience and applying it to straight people because, you know what, it's not the fucking same thing and it shouldn't take two women on the bus to point that out. I am quote-unquote normal. I don't need to feel any pride. Like <laughs> My whole life is built around telling me that I'm fine. It's, I've mm. never been made to feel ashamed or embarrassed or or whatever about my sexuality. I don't I don't need it. It's cool. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's ridiculous to think that you would. What have you done today to make you feel proud? Um, I've not fucked anyone I didn't fancy. <laughs> You're such a hero, Hannah. I Thank know. you. Stunning Thank and you. brave. Stunning and brave. Ever wondered who a man's best friend really is? His dog? Partner? Samantha the heavily soiled sex robot? Oh, Samantha. She always comes back to Samantha, doesn't it? Well, it turns out a man's best friend is in fact a man's best friend. As a recent survey found out that 54% of the 1,500 men they asked prefer being with their best friend over their wife or partner. I'm just going to throw this one out there before we delve any deeper, but guys, you're doing relationships wrong. You're supposed to marry people you like. The survey undertaken on behalf of Entertainment One, curiously, found out... I don't know what that is. It's a company. Okay. ...found that the men of Norwich are the nation's social butterflies with, on average, a whopping six friends each. And I How sh- many? Six I friends. can't even count that high. I assume they mean close friends, um, compared to just the three for the men of Sheffield. Much more manageable. Mm. Perhaps having very few friends is their penance for being the kind of people of whom just a fifth say their partner is the funniest person they know. Women aren't funny, obviously, so, you know, that stands to reason, doesn't it? And 69% of whom thought men were more loyal friends than women because they're always just fighting over cock, innit? It doesn't surprise me at all that men say their wife's not the funniest person that they know because whether a woman is funny does not focus at all 
on the list of reasons that men go for women. No, I'm not surprised either, but... I actually disagree with you a little bit as well. Yeah, I I have to say I do. I, as much as I love my partner, I have a best friend as well, because I don't think you should put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, agreed. I'm not saying that their partner should be their best friend. I just think that, you know, it's a bit sad that they want to spend time with their best friends over their partners. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, now see, as someone who gets claustrophobic, if they have to spend more than 10 minutes with someone, I kind of get it. That'll be why I'm grey asexual, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, uh, that cup's making more and more sense, Hannah. Yeah. Just out of interest, Mick, when you talk about your days as a young journalist, how old um, are you referring to? 21, 25? Yeah, like 21. 21. Maybe 29, no? I think that's pushing it. Well, for Tory leadership hopeful Michael Pobb Gove, it means <laughs> 31. That's the age he was when he now admits to taking cocaine recreationally. There's just so much to unpick in the torrent of drug-taking confessions among those running to be our next Prime Minister that we're going to be talking to the excellent Dr Susie Gage and to political correspondent Aisha Hazarika about it in one of this week's chops. But the point you might want to ruminate on between now and then was made by the Observer's policy editor, Michael Savage. That being that in 1999, at exactly the same time he was taking those drugs, Gove was also writing an editorial for The Times about the dangers of drugs. Case closed. Anyone fancy some good news? Yes, Yes, please, please. Jen. Okay, well, it is sort of a nugget of gold smeared in shit, so we're going to have to give it a good old wipe first, or rather Nike do. I'm not saying Nike. I can't. Is it not Nike? I don't like it. You don't like Nike. I don't like <laughs> Nike. It's it's Nike to me. I'm sorry. As they made a bid for some decent female-friendly PR this week. Fuck knows they need it. Yeah. You might remember that the sportswear giants were forced to admit last month that pregnant athletes sponsored by the brand had faced performance-related pay cuts. In a statement released at the time, Nike said it was common practice in our industry, so fair enough, for agreements with athletes to include performance-based payment reductions, but that it recognised the inconsistency in its approach and said that it had standardised its approach so female athletes were not penalised for taking maternity leave. But here's the good bit. Last week, Nike's London flagship store unveiled plus-sized and parasport mannequins in a bid to promote diversity within the brand. So on one hand, Nike aren't sure if women should be paid, but on the other, they think everyone should be able to buy their clobber. So that is good news indeed. I feel like you polished the shit off and then it ended up with more shit on it. Did it? Well, no, but I'm, I'm, but that's not your fault. It's Nike Nike's fault. Wouldn't it be nice if there were good news that was actually good? <laughs> Uh, over to the Telegraph, by the way, where Tanya Gold has written a piece having a right old go at Nike for these mannequins. Yeah, I read that this morning. And well, the, also the reaction to it. Yeah. Um, she thinks it's promoting obesity and she's pretty vile about it, I thought. Yeah, agreed. But I will say that a lot of people are having a go at her for generalising about overweight people and making a huge number of generalisations about journalists. <laughs> yeah, so, totally. You know... <laughs> He who is without sin. More news next week. Oh, God, there's not going to be more news. <laughs> well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we don our flat shoes in solidarity with the women of Japan. I say don, but you'll rarely find any of the three women in this room in anything other than sneakers or flat boots anyway. 
But high heels are big in Japan, whether a woman wants to wear them or not, as it is pretty much obligatory to wear them in the workplace. Irritated by achy feet not shared by her male colleagues, actor and part-time funeral parlour worker Yumi Ishikawa launched Kutu, which is a play on words from the Japanese kutsu, meaning shoes, and kutsu, meaning pain. And I apologise massively for probably appalling pronunciation there. And of course it's taken its lead from the Me Too movement. And Ishikawa has quickly won a shit ton of support. But Takumi Namoto, Japan's health and labour minister, defended the practice as, quote, necessary. How is it necessary to wear high heels? Surprisingly enough, it didn't go into detail. So fingers crossed that Ishikawa's petition, calling for the introduction of laws banning employers from forcing women to wear heels as sexual discrimination or harassment, which has garnered tens of thousands of signatures, makes him rethink his archaic ideas of what should be, quote, socially acceptable workwear for women. Isn't that interesting that the word for pain and the word for shoes are only one word apart in Japanese? Yeah. Because they got some weird shit about feet over there. They used to do the foot binding well, stuff. Well, that's what she's saying. She's like, this is sort of modern day foot binding because mm. women, like, she has to wear five to seven uh, centimetre heels to work. You know what the point about foot binding was? I mean, there's loads of stuff said about, like, weird sex stuff with foot binding. And there might be something in that. There's but, weird, you, anything has weird sex stuff. As but along with it. most things that are misinterpreted as being about sex, it was mostly about power mm-hmm. because you became an invalid at yeah. that point And you couldn't leave. You couldn't, you, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't work. You couldn't look after yourself. You basically had to be carried around because you had these massively deformed feet. So it was power and status. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because a lot of the, they used to have like really, really fat and they ate loads and loads. And that was a power and status thing as well, because it was showing off that you could afford to have that much food. Mm. And that was pretty universal, I think. Yeah, Henry VIII. He's got a mannequin in Nike. (laughs) (laughs) I am joined on the phone by mental health writer, former Standard Issue writer and now author, Michelle Thomas. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Mickey. Thanks very much for joining us. You have come on to chat to us about your debut book, which is called My Shit Therapist. Could you tell us a little bit about it and why you've decided to write it now? Yeah, um, well, the full title is My Shit Therapist and Other Mental Health Stories. I first got the idea kind of six or seven years ago when I had my first ever major depressive episode when I just sort of started crying at work one day and couldn't stop. It was really frightening and it's like any other illness. You kind of just want to read and listen to and research and review everything you can get your hands on about the subject. And at the time, everything that I could get my hands on about depression and about mental illness was really, really boring. It was really dry. It was just really data-driven. And all using this kind of soft, non-impactful, kind of these hushed, ethereal tones to talk about something (laughs) really, really serious, which just made me feel even more scared. And what I really wanted was something that mimics the same tone that I use when I talk about my mental health with my mates, which is dare I say, a little bit funny and frank and honest. When you just chat and just go, oh, mate, I had a really shitty anxiety dream last night. And then the other one goes, oh, right, okay, tell me all about it. When you're talking amongst your friends, it's really easy to just go, okay, have you eaten? Have you slept? Have you taken your medication like you should have been? Is there anything big and mad going on in your life at the moment? Mm -hmm. And it just makes it a lot less scary. That's how it started. And then, you know, spoiler alert, I did go and see a shit therapist 
which was something that nobody really talks about because getting therapy is really, really hard. You know, in some places in the UK, you can wait between three and 18 months to see a therapist on the NHS. I ended up paying to see someone privately, which is kind of based on my annual income. So it was about 20 quid an hour at the time. And it was shocking. It was really, really awful. And it's such a crushing disappointment because it's really, really hard to seek help for your mental health. So then when you do seek help, you imbue the people who you get it from with almost sort of supernatural, superhuman abilities mm-hmm. to know every single thing about you. They're kind of all wise, all knowing. And when they don't meet that admittedly ridiculously high expectation, it's really crushingly disappointing and it can be really, really dangerous when they're so outright shit that it could actually be really damaging, which is what my lovely lady was like. Oh my God. So when I was reading My Shit Therapist and I got to, I think it's about page 115 in this revelation about the titular shit therapist is made, Mm -hmm. what she said to you made me gasp. Because you sort of just touched on it then, but the whole getting help and getting therapy is really tricky because I've been diagnosed as clinically depressed when I was 19 and on and off medication and counselling and various things since then. Mm. And when I always call it the black dogs leading me or when you're in the hole or whatever your terminology is, just getting Mm. out of bed is a struggle. So when you're told, one, you have to self-refer, it's not going to happen a lot of the time for me. Two, you manage to do that. And three, then you get there. Then, yeah, you're right. You kind of think... I've made all this effort, please let this person help me. Yeah. When they end up saying to you what she said to you, which is, well, you know, there are plenty of people in this world who are far worse off than you. Basically, just just have a cup of tea and think about something else. Oh, God. Was the the way she put it. How did you hold it together? Yeah, I didn't hold it together at the time. And especially, you know, when you first start going to therapy, it might be the first time you've, It was, for me anyway, it was the first time I'd really given voice to these really horrible, really frightening thoughts that were in my head about being terrified that the people I loved were going to die and being terrified that something awful was going to happen and constantly feeling weighed down by fear and exhaustion and feeling like I was going mad, which was the first time it it had ever happened to me. So when you're actually giving giving voice to this stuff in, in a place where you, you know, it's supposed to be a safe space and it's all churning, it's just pouring out of you. And, and it's not like an instant relief. It's not like an instant catharsis. But you do think, right, it's done. I've said it. And now she's going to say something back and she's going to magic it away because that's what you think therapy's like, I think. you. I kind of thought it would be a magic bullet. I thought it was like a strategy thing. I thought it was like A plus B plus C equals no more madness. I was actually describing to this woman how I'd had a panic attack and what it was like when I'd had a panic attack. And it was in St. Pancras Station, and it was just awful. And it was just being kind of doubled over and having people running around shouting, she's having a heart attack, when I wasn't having a heart attack, I was having a panic attack. But having said that, I couldn't really tell them that, and I was kind of beating my chest and gasping for air. So I can understand that I was sending them some pretty mixed signals there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so then have the therapist and the counsellor just go, well, the next time you're about to have a panic attack, just think about something else and have a cup of tea. And like you say, because there are people who are far worse off than you, 
first of all, that cost me 20 quid, <laughs> which at the time, you know, and I just quit my job because I was mental. So I wasn't earning any money, but I was so desperate for help that I was going to get into debt, you know, getting this help. To be told based by a professional that basically you're making it up a bit, aren't you? You don't really need me here for this. You could just have a cup of tea and just think about something else, as if I hadn't already thought of that. It's hard to get tea down you when you're struggling to breathe, I find. Yeah. And, you know, this is after I've also told her that when I was so, so, so depressed in the first early days, I literally couldn't get out of bed. I would lie in bed crying because I was thirsty and I couldn't summon the energy to walk to the kitchen, get a glass, turn on the tap, fill the glass with water, turn the tap off and then drink. That was just too much. So, yeah, adding in, you know, Mm -hmm. the extra steps of, putting on the kettle and getting your tea back out it's like come on mate (laughs) yeah come on mate Uh, we're told all of the time it's good to talk and it is it it definitely is I'm not fighting that but it's very much if you can and also to the right person because when you're in the midst of that thing where it's it's difficult to catch breath it's very hard to explain what and why you're feeling Absolutely. That can be a really expensive process because there isn't room for that on the NHS. So, yeah, while, you know, the, the, the bottom line for every really successful mental health campaign over the last five years has been, you know, it's time to talk, let's talk, we need to talk. Yeah, absolutely. Double thumbs up to that. But it's also time to properly fund mental health services in this country. It's time yeah. to stop kind of systematically dismantling those services in a way that's going to impact the most vulnerable and the most unsafe people in the country. Sometimes you don't you don't need to talk. Sometimes you need proper clinical care. Talking is brilliant. Um, but and, but another thing that I, I talk about in the book is that sometimes it can feel like there's no middle ground. You know, when you're in a mental health crisis, it can feel like there's no middle ground between ringing the Samaritans and having a lovely cry and a shoulder to cry on and a chat. And I'm not absolutely not disparaging those services. I've used them. I'll probably use them again. They're absolutely brilliant. But it's not clinical care. But it feels like there's no middle ground between calling Samaritans and having a chat and taking yourself to A&E and maybe getting sectioned after you've waited six hours to yeah. see the psych team. It feels like there's only two really binary forms of, of care and of advice. And that's a really, really frightening thing. It can be really difficult to explain depression and other mental mm. health issues to someone who hasn't experienced it or them. But mate, your bee sting analogy. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Can you give us a little yeah. run through? Oh, I'm so glad you like it. For me, I think I'm someone who has depression, but I'm not always depressed. In the same way that Mm -hmm. being allergic to bee things doesn't mean you're in constant anaphylactic shock. It's only when you get stung that it's a problem. And in the same way that, you know, a person who is prone to depression, a person who has a bee sting allergy can get stung at any time. Their allergy isn't dependent on their life circumstances. You know, you could win the lottery, but you'd still be allergic to bee stings. Having a bee sting allergy isn't negated by a terrible world event. Um, You can't just use positive thinking (laughs) to uh, ward off anaphylactic shock. You probably just need medical attention and an EpiPen. Also, you can encounter a bee and not get stung. 
a person who is at has a bee sting allergy you might say something like um hello i'm allergic to bees there's a bee in my office i'm going to close the window to stop more bees from coming in and i'm going to move this enormous bouquet of flowers from my desk and you'd go yeah sure thing i'll take them <laughs> into my office because i really really like hyacinths even though you can take every precaution you're not guaranteed lifelong bee sting evasion but you shouldn't live in fear of your body's response to a chemical imbalance and by encouraging people to talk openly about their allergies and educating others about what to do if you encounter someone you know going into anaphylactic shock we can make our garden safer for everyone and we can all enjoy some time in the sun absolutely i love someone who runs with an analogy (laughs) so in my shit therapist and other Mm -hmm. mental health stories It's a lot of hard-won wisdom about how you deal with what I might term my brain being a prick and what you call your shit brain. And if anyone listening has a wonky brain, they've probably got a semi-affectionate slash pejorative name for it. You're not just on your own. You've also chatted with a lot of people from your diverse online community. You know, I'm a straight white woman. Whatever else I've got going on with my depression and my anxiety got a lot of privilege and my experience of mental health and other people's responses to my poor mental health are going to be really different Mm -hmm. to how they might respond to I don't know a young black guy for example or someone from the LGBT community you know my mental illness is people can kind of wrap their heads around depression and anxiety because it's kind of a version of you know feeling sad or feeling a bit nervous so it's most people can kind of get their heads around that but if it's something like psychosis or something like bipolar disorder or something like schizophrenia these are really frightening labels yeah they're not as palatable i guess so they're not ones that really have a lot of presence in the current mental health conversation so i was really mindful of that so what i wanted to do was share stories from lots of different people about how mental health impacted every area of their lives. It's also, you know, how do you parent when you suffer from poor mental health? Um, How do you change jobs? How do you talk to your kids about poor mental health? Um, What do you do when when you have a job that exposes you to really awful trauma a lot of the time? One of the stories I share in the book is from a really brilliant young policewoman called police officer female police officer oh, I don't know, don't know mate. <laughs> um, a police officer called Emma who was who was on duty during the London riots she had awful PTSD after that because she nearly died on the job what do we do what do these people do so those are the stories that I wanted to share in the book and some of them are really sad some of them are really hard-hitting some of it they're all there's hope for the more they're all from real people and I I think the big the big message from the book is I think that anything that you're experiencing has been met and dealt with before like throughout the whole of human history you know there are only seven stories there are only 12 musical notes there is a finite amount of trauma or different types of trauma and they have all been met and dealt with before. That's something that you have to take heart from, or that you can take heart from. Because, you know, when you're ill, you just want to make the world soft and gentle and quiet and nice for yourself. And I really want the book to be part of that. I want the book to be... I kind of want to hold people's hands and go, it's shit, mate, you're not making it up. (laughs) 
you're not making it up. It is shit, but it's going to get better because it got better for me and it got better for all the people in this book. It's hard to find someone saying it in a language I can understand. And your book really spoke to me in the same way that Matt Haig's writing speaks to me. Like you understood it was language I could relate to. I genuinely loved it. And it feels like a, a sort of mental health Bible that everyone should read. It's not just for people going through it. I think it would be brilliant for people to read who are trying to hold the hands of loved ones going through it. I'm going to lend it to people. I'm going to recommend it to people. I think you have done anyone suffering from mental illness a real justice you've treated us really nicely so thank you oh thank you mate and also you know there's people that you're going to lend it to and and it's brilliant but you are going to make them buy a copy oh totally yeah yeah absolutely i'm not i'm i'm not a charity mate (laughs) i'm going to lend it to them so they can read one chapter and then if they want to know what happens they have to (laughs) have to buy a copy yes i think i'll do that i'll do some kind of like subscription package (laughs) through my website where can people find you michelle so i'm on twitter at michelle thomas t-o-m-o-s and they can find me on instagram at ms m thomas thank you so much for chatting to me it's been a real pleasure no worries thank you mickey hello jen here interrupting if you like us you can follow us on all of the social medias all of the social medias all of them apart from snapchat because that's for sending roadies to people with and we um, don't want them once they've been recently invented that aren't exactly instagram though Bebo, we are on myspace <laughs> instagram though we are on that and we post pictures of things that aren't even cats like our guests and stuff like that <laughs> they're not get cats some cat guests? <laughs> yes <laughs> next week a cat special uh, <laughs> You can also find us on the Twitter. We are at Standard Issue UK. We are at Standard Issue Podcast on Instagram. And we are Standard Issue Magazine on Facebook. You're welcome. I am joined on the phone by comedian, author, Strictly alumnus and all-round excellent Wonder Woman, Susan Carmen. Hello, Susan. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? Look, I'm fine, actually. I've just been doing some cleaning, so I'm feeling amazing you've only gone and written another bloody book mate i know i have i know i have and it's out on paperback right now <laughs> so yes I, I like writing books actually it's a, a pleasurable way of living a life i think so book two sunny side up is a story of kindness and joy and it's sort of part memoir part manifesto to make the world a nicer place it is it has been subtitled the cow manifesto lovely um, stuff of happiness thank you very much indeed I try and get my name into everything <laughs> in a pun-like fashion. I've used the Calman before the storm. That one's gone. I think my next book will probably be entitled The Calmanac. That's the one I've been waiting to use for some time. I suppose you have to build up to that. You need more dates. Yeah, well, that's really, that's really the end point, isn't it? If you're writing a Calmanac, that's really got to be the end point of everything. So my first book, Cheer Up Love, was about depression and mental health and anxiety. And this one is trying to look at a more positive way of living my life. Because after writing the first book, I realised I was quite depressed. And it's quite tiring to be depressed all the time. And I was trying to see if I could change my life up a bit. Yeah, it is a very different Carmen from days of yore. So if three years ago someone had said to you, you're going to write a book about finding kindness and joy in the world, what would your response have been? I would have said that sounds like a, an incredible fictional book that someone might write <laughs> at some point, but not me. Funny, the process of writing a book about how depressed you are 
makes you realise how depressed you are. And actually, you know, writing that book and then having to talk about it a lot on kind of in book festivals made me realise that I was, I mean, 40 odd years of my life had been spent feeling quite upset and angry at myself. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really want to, I'm going to use the term waste because it's a personal term. I'm not talking about people who have depression wasting their life, but from my point of view, there was a lot about my depression and anxiety I could control and I could change. Um, I'll always be depressed and anxious, but I can do something about it. And I thought, right, I'll try and do something about it so that I'm... For my wife and my family and my friends as well, so that life's a bit more cheerful. I was wanting to write about kindness and joy anyway because... And it's kind of a strange, prescient thing that this was, uh, as Brexit was happening, because I started writing on my stand-up chair, so Brexit had happened, and everyone thought it was going to be over quickly. (laughs) Um, Oh, God. Trump Trump, uh, was running for president. And there was a just I just had a feeling that the world was coming becoming more unkind. And so I was trying to it was kind of a, a I was trying to write something for people like myself who don't want to be angry about everything and want to be positive to try and change things positively. You know, I don't go on protest marches and I know people will get very angry about me, but I'm frightened of them. I'm a tiny human being. And I get swamped by people and people get quite angry about mm-hmm. things. And I, I find it difficult to cope with that aspect of protesting. But people who don't like the way things are going, but also who don't want to just shout at each other, that's what, you know, during the referendum, the Brexit referendum, people were just shouting at each other. And part of kindness, as I talk about in the book, is about listening to other people's point of view. And you may not agree with them, but I just feel like we don't listen anymore to other people. And all that happens is that people shout at each other and we never get anywhere. You do a lovely interruption of yourself in Sunnyside up now and again with chapters called Travels With My Plant. And it's about when you've asked audience members in your stand-up shows to tweet you with acts of kindness that have happened to them or that, or that they've performed. And some of them are just, like, they're so heartwarming. Oh, I mean, some of them are, are just, they make me so happy because they're absolutely delicious. They're often about uh, people feeling lonely or down and how people have dealt with it. There's one particular one which I love, which is a, a woman said she was she was in a cafe and, and the reason I like this is because, and this is no disrespect to any men who are listening to this, but it's a particularly I think male way of dealing with it and I love it. The woman said she was trying to cry discreetly in the corner of a cafe and a man made her a balloon penguin. <laughs> that is so lovely. And you can just see this guy going, I don't know what to do, I'll make her a balloon penguin, that'll cheer her up, and it did. And I just thought, that's a lovely thing to do. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, you wouldn't be cheered up by someone giving you a balloon penguin. <laughs> and I just think that's a, it's a lovely story. And you can hear more lovely stories of kindness from Susan this Sunday, when my full chat with her is one of our Sunday chops. Susan and I also discuss what to do when the world's on fire, how Strictly legit changed her life, and that time she spent on death row. I shit you not. Also, it is worth noting that during the interview, the batteries in my recording kit died, and Susan patiently sang cold music to me while I changed them, and it made me feel much less stressed about the situation, because kindness is awesome. 
as is Sunnyside Up, which is available from all good bookshops. Oh, hey there, people of Canterbury, people near Canterbury and people with weekend access to Canterbury. We're bloody coming for you. In the nicest possible way, of course. That's right, our next live event is at the Marlowe Theatre in Canterbury on Sunday the 21st of July, when we're joined by the always excellent Scummy Mummies, Helen Thorne and Ellie Gibson, and socio-political powerhouse Kimar Bob for an hour of fierceness and funnies as part of the Marlowe Comedy Festival. It's going to be mint, and you can get tickets via our website, www.standardissuepodcast.com, or by going to the What's On section of marlowetheatre.com. Come, see us. Let us see you. Yes. We are joined by Fran Rideout, barrister and director of the Legal Advice Centre at Queen Mary University London. Hi, Fran. Hi. Also with us. Hello, it's Mickey. It is Mickey, Mickey Noonan. Fran, one of the things you do at the Legal Advice Centre is you have a scheme called SPITE, which I believe stands for Sharing and Publishing Images to Embarrass. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the work you do more generally around image-based sexual abuse? Yeah, we don't think the term revenge porn is a particularly good phrase for a number of reasons. Um, so we have a clinic where we give free legal advice to victims of image-based sexual abuse or revenge porn. So essentially, victims can come to us to receive free legal advice and that is preliminary legal advice but it's quite in-depth legal advice so we cover issues of criminal law, family law and civil law but some really practical steps as well that people can take on reverse image searches and um, Google alerts and things like that. You said that you didn't think the term revenge porn was very helpful, Mm. why is that? First of all private sexual images are often not what people would themselves consider to be pornographic. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be quite offensive to somebody to label quite a natural thing that somebody's done as pornographic material. And secondly, the distribution of a private sexual image isn't always done for revenge. Typically you have cases where it might be a troll or somebody who doesn't even know the victim, Um, or these sorts of sexortion cases, which are basically blackmail. As we saw with Jennifer Lawrence and the celebrities whose photos got shared. Exactly. I mean, the Jennifer Lawrence situation, who knows what the motive was? I assume it was money. um... It is interesting because all of those sort of celebrity hacking things, they were pretty much all women, right? So I don't want to generalise. Obviously, men can be victims of these crimes as well, but it is predominantly women, would you say? Absolutely. Um, And what's really interesting is the shift that's happened over the years. So if you think about Paris Hilton back in the day and, you know, her her sex sex video. Yeah, exactly. And then if you look at even the singer from N-Dubs. Talisa. Talisa, yeah. yeah, And how she was treated in the media. And then you start to look at Jennifer Lawrence. And it was a real line in the sand, I think, of where we suddenly stopped thinking this is happening for women sort of doing self publicity for for want of a better phrase and really people started to take it a bit more seriously yeah why do you think the shift happened I think it was probably about time the shift happened and I suspect something about the credibility that Jennifer Lawrence had behind her Mm. and the fact that it suddenly became clear to everybody that this could be something that happens every day isn't that interesting though the credibility of the woman is what makes people rethink it rather than it just being wrong 
Absolutely. And that idea underpins a lot of the problems with the legislation, you know. The illegality of sharing private sexual images came in in 2015 after much campaigning. And, you know, it's great to have a piece of legislation, whether it's the best thing that we could have done. There's quite a few of us that think it's a bit of a token gesture piece of legislation. So in short, if you disclose or distribute or share a private sexual image of another person without the consent of the person depicted in the image and with the specific intention of causing that person distress you can be guilty of an offence. There's a hell of a lot to prove there Mm. isn't there? Yeah and the real issue that I have is the intention to cause distress. So you know let's take for example grievous bodily harm that you might get charged with if you stabbed someone. You need an intention there to cause serious bodily harm or to to do a wounding. You need that same level of intention for this offence, except this one has a maximum of two years imprisonment as the highest possible sentence, and grievous bodily harm would have life imprisonment. So you've got a real disconnect going on here. You know, I often think that you should have a sentence that has, I don't know, maybe a maximum of five years with that level of intention, and then a sort of second level, a second tier offence. I don't know, maybe the the same mental element as you need for harassment, like the person knew or ought to have known that their behaviour would cause distress to somebody else. There's there's a lot of onus on the victim to do the proving there, and the, what are we calling them, predator? I like the word predator. Predator. (laughs) There's a lot of ways of getting out of that. There's a lot of excuses you can throw out. So I actually thought there'd be loads more or um, people saying, oh, I was just having a laugh. I just shared them to have a laugh. We've not seen that many of those cases coming through the courts or certainly getting to the appeal courts. Just lols and bants, Fran. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a huge problem. It's it's quite a serious step that needs to be proved. And, And people don't have the energy often or, you know, the wherewithal to prove that in the courts. The other thing is, you know, two years maximum sentence is a bit of a joke. In my opinion, I think it could be a lot longer. There's a number of other problems with the statute, but one of the things on that on that point of intention is, so you know, you might say, oh, whenever you share an image, it's going to cause someone of distress. Course, that's yeah. just a normal assumption. Yeah. The statute specifically says that that's not enough to prove intention in this instance. Which it has is to be crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, doctored images also aren't counted. So if, I don't know, let's say you take a local primary school teacher's face and put it on a porn star's body that could cause almost as much harm and damage and upset, it's not covered under the statute. It's interesting, the newspapers used to run those kind of women, politicians a lot, on the bodies of models or page three girls and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just as you'd just see it in the paper. Threats aren't included in the statute either. So um, somebody could be threatening another person, they're going to disclose the image, which again could cause as much anxiety, a lot of distress, especially if that person's from quite a conservative community, and then it's still not covered. If people are doubting how serious this is, this like, if someone's got something on you and how much anxiety that can cause, in the case of Shana Grice, one of the reasons she stopped going to the police was because she knew that Michael Lane, who later killed her, had intimate messages that they'd sent to each other and she was worried they would get out. He'd already shown he was capable of sharing stuff and was going to use it. We have people in all levels of distress. It, you know, you should never presume somebody's going to, to feel in a certain way when they come to you, but, but some of our clients, you know, really some of the distress we've seen is, is harrowing. And a lot of people also go to the Revenge Porn Helpline, which is a, is a free organisation, government-funded, that victims can go to 
but they specialise in trying to get images removed from online platforms rather than sort of focusing on the law, which we do. Mm-hmm. But they often will pick up the phones people before we do and, and, and hear them really in, in, in terrible distress. It, and it can devastate someone's whole life, um, as well as the feelings that they have of, of, of being exposed vulnerability walking down the street thinking has that person seen my images has that person not knowing how far it's traveled over the internet not having any control about putting boundaries around it Um, in a lot of cases trolls or people who are 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 doing sort of sextortion try to get the the contact details of somebody's family and will specifically threaten to share with family. You know, there used to be quite a classic MO of um, a random message to someone on Facebook, you know, oh, I've got something to tell you, friend me. Oh, that's interesting, I'll add you as a friend. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden they can see all your friends and family and then the threats start after that. You know, we see cases coming out of dating websites and the private images that people might have on there. We see cases of, you know, sexuality being exposed in this way. It's just... So sad and so devastating um, in so many cases, uh, which is why, you know, I say two years is is not really enough. What about the police kind of response to this? How do you see that sort of playing out? Mick mentioned Shana Grice and there are a lot of instances that we hear about where women are not taken very seriously and also how difficult it is to prove cases of, I guess, well, sex crimes in general. So one of the biggest issues that we had when we started this project was that nearly every victim was coming to us and saying, oh, the police said I shouldn't have taken the images or implied that I shouldn't have taken the Mm. images. There has been an improvement. So we started in 2015. It's a slight improvement. There still needs to be so much more training done um, in this area so much more. As a criminal offence, there's always going to be the safeguards and, and checks and balances that, you know, some, myself included, would argue that that need to happen in, in for criminal offences in a proper way. But you're right that it's, it's a bigger problem within a lot of sexual offences that actually it gets quite difficult to prove. Since you started the campaign, mm. are you seeing more people coming forward? Because another thing is because people tend to know that they will be under pressure to prove stuff and not be believed, a lot of sex crimes just don't get reported in the first place. I don't know the exact figures of of reporting, but the Crown Prosecution Service released some figures in their annual reports about violence towards women and girls. And the first year of having the offence available, there were 206 prosecutions. Wow. Yeah. And then the second year, 2016 to 17, there was 465 people who'd been prosecuted under that Section 33 offence that we talked about. so That's incredible. I haven't seen the data for, for the year after that, but there is definitely an increase. I suspect it will mirror other sexual offences and there will always be a level of, of under-reporting and then also not prosecuting for various reasons. Do you think there's an ignorance among the population that, one, it is a crime and, two, they can do something about it. Absolutely. Less so now with the idea of sharing into images because I think it's it's been in the press so much. But when we started in 2015, yeah, there was definitely a lot of, oh, you know, of interest about it, it being being topical. And in a sense, that's where the, the phrase revenge porn isn't quite so bad because everybody knows what you mean when you yeah. say that because the media, you know, have, have hyped it up. But there's definitely an ignorance in relation to children as well. So, of course, 
If a young person has an image of somebody under 18 in their possession, that's technically covered by paedophilia legislation. You know, that's really serious criminal offences. If you're under 18, you're much more likely to have an image of somebody else under 18. Yeah. Um, you know, if there's sexting or, or something like that. So really getting the message out to the younger generations as well, not only about the illegality of sharing if the person in the image is over 18, but also what it means if they're under 18. But hopefully that will all be improved with the changes to sex education that are coming in in September 2020. So at the point point that we're currently discussing this, last week upskating was made a criminal offence that came into force, that new legislation. How significant do you think that is? I think it's a real positive step. Again, I'm not sure the legislation is the best legislation. It's all a bit piecemeal. We're, we're plugging gaps rather than having like one coherent piece of legislation that tackles sort of cyber sexual offences. But it is a step forward, you know. By having the law in place, we have marked that it is inappropriate behaviour. It is not right. Um, and hopefully we'll start to see people being punished accordingly or a reduction. That would be the ideal. So no, one of the things you've just mentioned just now and we've spoken about before is the piecemeal nature mm. of the current legislation. And mm. what you'd like to see is one piece of legislation that covers all of these different offences sort of comprehensively rather than, as you say, plugging the gaps. Yeah. What difference would that make? So one of the big problems with image-based sexual abuse you know, is that it's not counted as a sexual offence. So that means that if a victim comes forward, they don't automatically get anonymity. Of course, an application can be made to a judge, but that's not an automatic thing that a police officer could say to a victim to try and give them comfort going through the proceedings. The same is true of the upskirting legislation. If we had something where it was a proper recognised sexual offence and a proper codified piece of legislation, and we could also put in things like, you know, a sex offenders register. We could get a bit more consistent in how that's part of the punishment that happens for of these Of course. Offenses. So if you're currently, if you're found guilty of upskirting or revenge porn, then there's no repercussions in terms of the sex offenders um, register. There definitely isn't for revenge porn. Um, I don't know about upskirting. Well, that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. The, the revenge porn legislation particularly is really, it's great. We're talking about it now. We might not have been six years ago. But it really is a halfway house. What's the dream, Fran? What's the dream? A, a proper piece of legislation, I think, that, that tackles... I don't know how you would tackle trolling, but has upskirting revenge porn, trolling, you know, receiving unwanted dick pics, you know, this idea of, of catfishing and whether someone tricks you into doing something and then there's a sexual relationship on the back of it. How far does that... Uh, you know, vitiate somebody's consent or actually whether it is a kind of fraud by misrepresentation, but instead of getting money out of you, they're getting you know, sexual conduct. And I don't know if it would include that as well, but something a bit more codified, a bit stronger and a bit better understood and certainly without the the loopholes like altered images not being included. What should someone do and where can they find you? Because it seems to me like spite is probably quite a good place to start if they think that they have been a victim of revenge porn or other image-based sexual abuse. First and foremost, I know this feels like the last thing you want to do, but, but make sure you record the evidence of it. If someone sent you a message saying that they've posted it on here, you know, screenshot those and keep them. If there's something on a website, it could get taken down from a website, so try and take pictures of it so that you've got the evidence there, because just like we were saying with the prosecutions, um, you won't 
have the evidence to support that prosecution if you can't retain it. Secondly, if something is online and still online, it's really important that you contact the Revenge Porn Helpline straight away. You know, they're experts in their field of trying to get things removed from online platforms. You can also obviously have a look at your privacy settings on all of your social media and other accounts. Changing passwords is a very straightforward, easy thing that you can do. But if you're worried that anybody has got those, you know, if things do progress and you want legal advice, we give free independent legal advice um, all year round on the Spike Project. So you can contact the Queen Mary Legal Advice Centre who run this clinic at lac at qmul.ac.uk. Thanks, Fran. Thanks for joining us. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we damn the man by turning up to a World Cup with celebratory hair as we discuss all things women's sport. First up, massive congratulations to Joe Conta, who became the first British woman to reach the semi-final of a French Open since 1983. That was Joe Jury, by the way. Bearing in mind, Conta went into the tournament seeded 26, having experienced a massive drop back down the rankings over the last couple of years. It's pretty impressive stuff. And it was her third semi-final, so, you know, we hope, obviously, very much that we will progress from that round in future tournaments. Also, as I keep saying, Clay. No one likes it. No one likes it, apart from Rafa Nadal, who absolutely fucking loves it, and won his 12th French Open title on Sunday, but whatever. Conta ultimately lost out on a place in the final to Czech teenager Marketa Vondrusova on Friday, but I reckon that gives us a lot to be excited by in terms of Wimbledon, which is coming up next month. And well done to Australian Ashley Barty, who eventually went on to take the title. And yeah, I can't say I was expecting that one either, but as we say, you just don't know what's going to happen in the women's draw. Elsewhere, there is hockey going on. Well, I mean, there actually has been for a while, in the Women's FIH Pro League. You might have heard me chatting to excellent hockey birds Kate and Helen Richardson Walsh about this a little while ago on this very pod, how Great Britain are not doing terribly well at the moment for a whole bunch of reasons and unfortunately it's still not looking great for them. They've suffered five consecutive defeats since May the 19th with the most recent coming last week as they were beaten 4-2 by Australia on Sunday and 4-3 by Germany on Friday. Their next match of the campaign is against Netherlands on Sunday and New Zealand on June the 23rd and I think it's basically impossible for them to progress to the next stage of the tournament now. Okay, let's move on to happier news, and that is that the Women's World Cup is finally here. Hurrah! I can't lie, it is slightly happier news if you're English rather than Scottish, as the Lionesses beat Scotland 2-1 on Sunday, but I will say, in terms of expectation, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Scotland played pretty well and could very easily have come out of the match with a draw. England benefited from what some will tell you was an unlucky penalty for Scotland, thanks to a handball Although, you know, rules. Rules help control the fun, guys. That was converted by the wonderful Nikita Paris, and the lead was consolidated by Ellen White, who scored, in my opinion, an absolute belter. Claire Emsley took advantage of a mistake by Steph Horton in the second half to score for Scotland. So, to my mind, England really dominated in the first half and then uh, slacked off a little bit in the second. They were probably a bit worse than I was expecting them to be, and Scotland were probably a bit better than I was expecting. Their next matches are on Friday as Scotland take on Japan and England play Argentina. Elsewhere in the tournament, no massive surprises. France looked very strong indeed in their opening match. 
Everyone who you've expected to do well has done thus far, bar Australia, who were beaten by Italy. Shanice van der Sanden has turned up with leopard print hair, and frankly, I am a little bit jealous about that. I think the standard has been really, really high, so much better than the last World Cup, and if I'm completely honest, perhaps even a bit better than I was expecting. So, if you like football, you can watch every game of the tournament on the BBC, either online or on the red button, if not actually on TV proper, as it were. We had a lovely time at Bustamantis in Deptford on Sunday, so thanks if you came along to that. I was getting a few tweets prior to that from people in other parts of the country about trying to meet up with women locally to go to the pub and watch a game. So if that's something you want to try and do, I'm very happy to RT you if you tweet me on at Inspiragen or at Standard Issue UK. I'm not sure if we'll get a chance to do anything else because, you know, we're busy putting things in your ears every week. But if you're in London, keep an eye out for stuff being organised by the likes of this Fangirl or the Festival of Football, which is happening predominantly at the Book Club and Hoxton Square Bar and Kitchen. Until next time. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of future hell did you watch this week? Now, we were going to watch that thing with Justin Timberlake in, but we had problems with that. So instead, we decided to watch something that isn't technically a dystopia, but fuck it. 1993's Demolition Man, which is science fiction, action... It's kind of got a bit of the Manchurian candidate in it. It's, I don't think it counts. I think it's an action pantomime. Yes, that would be the closest thing. It's sort of dystopian. I would argue that yeah. their utopia is actually dystopian. Yeah. And certainly when we meet Dennis Bill Hicks Leary, where they're living underground is very dystopian. So it's got a point out starring Jesse Ventura. So he is Obst- currently our perpetual man of the future, having been mentioned twice. He will inevitably be overtaken by Arnold Schwarzenegger and or Charlton Heston because they are the people that are in the most dystopian films. Starring Sylvester Stallone, after Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal both turn their role down. Idiots. Starring Wesley Snipes, after Jackie Chan turned the role down. Starring Sandra Bullock, after Laurie Petty left on day two citing creative differences, and starring Nigel Hawthorne, who presumably had a massive tax bill to pay <laughs> or something. So when are we? Well, we start off in 1996. The future? Yeah, and then we move to 2032. It's funny that you say the future, because oddly, the amount that they believe that technology has progressed between 1993 and 1996 is huge, whereas how far it progresses after between 1996 and 2032 appears to be... Not that much at all. Oh, interesting, because I thought the technology was actually the most futuristic mm. technology we've seen. Not flying cars level. They're all chipped and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but still in a really, really android way. Oh, yeah, still in a sort of Pong Atari <laughs> yeah. graphics. Whereas between 1993 and 1996, they have presumably... Well, they've finessed. just set everything on fire. Yeah, <laughs> but they have finessed cryogenics. Yes. Yeah. 
They, that is quite futuristic. The whole like, no, but that happens. That happens between ninety three and ninety six. Mm. Give us some broad strokes then of the plot. Yes, <laughs> the plot. It doesn't really exist. The plot in this, to be honest, there is aspects of plot. <sighs> I mean, but they really don't bother to explain it. So it's worth mentioning that everybody in this has a ludicrous name. Ludicrous. They do. Absolutely. I love it ludicrous. so much. Let's start with Simon Phoenix. He's risen from the icy ashes. I think it's just so they can get that gag in later. Absolutely. He has that name. He is holding some hostages. Now, there is literally no explanation. They're on a bus, aren't they? Were they on a bus? They were or have I conflated two 90s classic stories? Yeah, but he's not... No, there's no motivation. Just it's just This man. is a bad man. It's, hey. it's Batman level of... Yeah, bad of, guy. Cartoon of bad, guy. bad guy. Exactly. You know, you send a maniac to catch a maniac. Kind mm. of. Exactly. So, in to this chaos... Bungee jumping from a helicopter whilst firing a gun while the Hollywood sign is on fire in the background is John Spartan, played by Sylvester John Spartan. Yeah. Everything goes badly wrong. Lots of people die. And inexplicably, Simon Phoenix, who's played by Wesley Snipes, says, oh, he knew about it. He's a bad guy too. And... All the courts seem to believe this guy. Fair play. Why wouldn't you you. believe the town maniac, Hannah? Exactly, why wouldn't you? The long and the short is, they both end up frozen to be rehabilitated when they're allowed parole. Can we just tangentially mm. talk about when they are being frozen and how and how many ball sacks yeah, how many, t- t- <laughs> how many times you nearly get way too close to Sylvester Stallone I have scrolling. to say I don't know what his best he doesn't really do anything for me and I don't know what his best angle is but the underside of his ball sack is not it the back of a man's balls is the worst <laughs> view of a man <laughs> it is absolutely horrific anyway shoot forward you find yourself in 2032, where Simon Phoenix is being unfrozen, defrosted for parole. Can I ask a question? A plot question, because I think I've missed something. Okay. The cryogenic freezing process is the idea that they will be like rehabilitated whilst frozen. Yeah, they're going to be having la la la. Okay, so like someone's like putting stuff in the brain, so they'll like subliminally be better people. I'd also okay. just like to talk about you mocking that it's not futuristic, Hannah. They can defrost a man, and it is all men, it's a proper sausage fest, but they can defrost a man in an hour. And I had a fish pie the other day, and it took 12 <laughs> hours to defrost. <laughs> Wowzers. So, speedy. Simon Phoenix is defrosted first, <laughs> runs off, kills a load of people, and everyone freaks out. Now, does he kill or does he murder death mur- kills? <laughs> murder death kills a load of people. I don't understand why he was due parole before Sylvester Stallone was. Yeah, I wondered that, actually. Anywho, in the future, everything's wonderful. Crime's basically been eradicated. They all freak the fuck out and have to defrost the only man who can beat Simon Phoenix. They all John they all Spartan. Lose it, apart John from Spartan. one woman. Who's brave and bold, and she wants to, she wants to be in the past. Mm. She does, and uh, she's played by Sandra Bullock. She drives a self-driving car, which fortunately leaves her lots of time to pluck her eyebrows to fuck. Yeah, very, very 90s very brows, 90s. very 90s brows. I noticed that. Mm. So that's the long and short of the plot, as it were. <laughs> I mean, she's right. Question. Are we nearly there yet? Yes, and absolutely fucking no. Um, <laughs> society is now very anodyne. Dennis Leary, who 
we've got lots of things to say about Dennis Leary, but give him his due. He has a rather spectacular rant in this. Oh, he has a proper monologue, doesn't about, he? It could about be Bill how Hicks you material. can't swear Maybe anymore. <laughs> like, he can't swear anymore, you can't eat meat, you can't eat spicy food, you can't play contact sports. Everything that might cause you any difficulties or problems or pain or shorten your life in any way is banned. So there like is salt, nanny sugar. state. It is very much a nanny state. The police, who are now bored witless, obviously, just a bit like Nazis, which bothers me slightly. Mm. Don't you find something about Nazi esque about their uniform? Yeah, they are a bit. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, there's been an earthquake as well. That's worth saying. The big one. The big one. Mm-hmm. San Francisco and Los Angeles are now one city. Which has risen out of the rubble. Called San Frangeles. Yeah. But yeah, everything's really anodyne. And I think that there is something interesting that it's in kind of, you know, like we're always talking now about how we have no attention spans. I think it's quite interesting that, that they don't have music anymore. They just have adverts, which are like clips that are like mm. 15 seconds long. And that's, um, this might be the point, point worth saying that of all of the performance in this, most of which are hammy in the extreme. She I, means brilliant, by the way. I absolutely fucking love Benjamin Bratt, who looks like he's had a head injury through most of it, who is so wonderfully naive and over-enthusiastic about everything. He's very simple. Yeah. <laughs> He literally then has a life change that is the same as being having a bang on the head. Yeah. It all gets flipped around. Women, should we talk about women? Well, there's one. There's yeah. one. There's our woman. Women in 2032 are not doing very well. There's certainly not many of them in the police force. You would imagine that actually previous restrictions, possibly as to what would stop a woman becoming a police officer, like perhaps stature, which used to be a thing, wouldn't need to be a thing anymore because being a police officer is basically just sitting around doing fuck all. You collecting nineties memorabilia. But yeah. then why would you have so many like why do they have so many fucking policemen police people in the first place? Well I mean that is the question, yeah. Jen. I don't know. So Sandra Bullock's in it. The only way I can think to describe her character is plucky. She does get quite a lot to do. I find her quite endearing, but she is the only woman. She is. And of course she has to get involved in banging Sylvester Stallone. Oh my mm. God, seriously. It's the worst sex scene ever. It's hilarious. Stallone's just running around like a lusty trapezium and then just wants to... Oh, So I had a little look at the age gap, guys, because, you know... I was wondering was One of my big things. Mm. Stallone is playing 38 when he was actually 47. That's generous. Bullock yeah. was 29, but in real life there is a 14-year age gap between the two. So actually, by Hollywood standards, not it's not massive. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, it's not great. But it's, it's not massive. And then there were rumours, because he mentions his daughter, but that was like a plot line that just got lost mm. and left on the cutting room floor. She is actually in it. There was a whole other subplot about his I daughter. I did wonder at a point whether she was supposed to be his daughter. And that's what I was going to say. There was a lot of rumours of, like, is Bullock supposed to be his daughter? But no, there was another woman. She's seen doing what women do best cowering while there's violence yeah. going on in the underground bit just out of interest benjamin bratt's character is called alfredo garcia amazing which clearly comes from bring me the head of alfredo yeah. garcia and it's one of a number of nods to other things that give this film a more hilarious edge because it clearly thinks it deserves to have a character called cocteau and it directors <laughs> thinks it deserves to have a character called huxley I don't think you've heard that, but anyway. I think it's tongue-in-cheek, though. Mm. One of the things when I was having a little read about it, what a lot of people are asking is, is Demolition Man a comedy? (laughs) In that kind of... Because it is very funny. Whether they're 
went for that or whether that's just an accident. I think think they went for it. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing about society is, of course, that half of it lives underground. Yes. Or a lot of it lives underground, led by Dennis Leary's character, who's called something friendly, I believe. Edgar Friendly. Edgar Friendly, probably a reference to something else as well. I don't really understand what's going on underground, to be honest, because on the one hand, they're stealing food because they're starving. And on the other hand, when Sylvester Stallone goes down, the first thing he does is buy some food. So take food away from them and then pay in a Rolex, which is of absolutely no worth to them whatsoever. So um, <laughs> It is a rat burger. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. Given that we're talking about society, can we just touch on a former president in this world? Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah. President um, Arnie, guys. Yeah, it's a top prediction, if ever there was one. Because they explained it by saying that there was a... Um, 41st a, Amendment or yeah, something. Yeah, that changed yeah. the fact that he wasn't born in this country, so he's allowed... In America, so he's allowed to be president. I was wondering about this, about the um, chronology of it. When did he actually become the governor? Oh, this was predicted 10 years before he became governor. He ran to be governor of California after the Enron collapse, and that would have been late 2001, maybe early was, 2002. Well, yeah, so it was 10 years yeah. after this that he ran yes. for governor. Yeah. So... Do you think he was inspired by Demolition Man? (laughs) I'm inspired by Demolition Man, Jen, so I can't imagine it didn't touch Arnie as well. It's kind of weird that it is... I mean, obviously it's because Arnie is Arnie. Arnie. But Ronald Reagan was an actor. It wasn't unheard of that someone who was on the telly would turn out to be president. Correct. Do you think it was that Stallone versus Arnie kind of... It's just how Arnie ended up as governor of California... Is really interesting. You should watch The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is about the collapse of Enron. And it was very much opportunist. Yeah, it was slightly more populist than perhaps with Ronald Reagan. Okay. Technology. They do go for the volume of television rather than the size, which is quite common in dystopia. When they're in that police station, they've got like hundreds of small tellies. And that's actually something that happens in Rollerball, which we'll get to at some point in this, rather than the fact that tellies might actually just get larger, which is what has actually happened. Yeah, it's happened. the Max Headroom effect, isn't yeah. it? Of just like loads of screens making up one big screen. Yeah. There is something that seems a bit like the internet, maybe, that you log on to in the street. Yep. What I will say is that conference call technology appears to work in 2032, and it doesn't work now, so that's <laughs> something to look forward to. And, presumably, there is the technology that... And that actually might well exist that enables you to implant information in someone's brain while they are unconscious, which is what happens to Simon Phoenix when the the bad guy, who they don't keep as a secret particularly well or particularly long, no, um, not played by Nigel Hawthorne, he's called Mr. Cocteau, and that Doctor Cocteau, Doctor Cocteau. I mean, it could only have been more on the nose if he was called Dr. Moreau. Now, that's basically the same principle that if you fall asleep listening to French, you might learn some French, I assume. Yeah. Or some knitting. Yeah. Yes. Gun technology has advanced. They have some sort of phaser, which Wesley Snipes finds. But it doesn't matter because much like the A-Team, there's a lot of bullets fired and no fucker hits anybody. They're all terrible shots. There aren't flying cars, but there are self-driving cars, which is technology that is is happening, isn't it? It's been trialled in Milton Keynes as we speak. I think we need to talk about capes. Yeah. Talk me through the fashion. Let's talk about fashion. Now, obviously, during the earthquake, all fashion information was lost. <laughs> and now the, the guy that is the assistant to 
Nigel Hawthorne's character. Mm. He plays pretty much exactly the same character in Beetlejuice. Yes, yeah, exactly. he's a cross between Varys and Biggins, yes, yes. I think. Varys and Biggins. <laughs> Varys, his name's Varys Biggins. Yeah, it really should be. Um, there was a homage you didn't get. Um, but so this was very gowny, very cloaky, yeah. very very starch, very kimono, very Star yes, Wars kimono-y. almost. Yeah. Um, everybody's wearing a cape. Or the other thing is the fashion sported by Wesley Snipes, which is so extraordinary that I can only describe it as being Lenny from the Grapes of Wrath if he had the brace down on a roller coaster. <laughs> He actually looks like he's on a roller coaster with that thing that comes around his neck. It's weird, isn't it? Dungarees and a seatbelt. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that hair that apparently Wesley Snipes hated and immediately shaved off. And it's weird because he garners some followers at some point and immediately is able to furnish them with exactly the same kind of odd outfits as he's wearing. Yeah, where did his clothes come from? Because yeah, he was naked. Mm. He was fully nude, back of the balls out, when they cryogenicked him. Yeah. And the other, obviously, the other fashion is the classic dystopian underground Mad Max theme yeah. of Dennis Leary and his gang of happy but hungry followers. <laughs> Can we talk about um, the people underground and the stealthy way that they view what's going on upstairs <laughs> by just shooting periscopes out mm. of the grass? Yeah. Seemingly, Syl- Sylvester Stallone is the only other human that can spot them, though, because he keeps going, did you see that? And you're like, fucking hell, everyone saw that, surely. Is there a Cassandra moment? Do you know what I think, oddly, that there is? Go on. Mm. Both Dennis Leary and Sylvester Stallone have rants in this about, you know, this fascist bullshit, which is what Stallone's character calls it. And that's when he speaks the line, why don't you just shove a leash up my ass while you're at it? And that doesn't even make any <laughs> sense. Um, what this film is about, middle-aged men raging that things aren't like they used to be. Oh, yeah, that and true. that men have essentially had their balls cut off and aren't allowed to be men anymore. And that being nice and being kind and not punching people in the face is a bad thing. They believe that men need to be men a bit more. I actually think that's not that far off from what's happening now. There is a kickback against men having feelings, isn't there, somewhere on the internet. This is basically John Spartan is essentially Piers Morgan just raging that now he knows how to knit. This isn't a thing. How's he going to be a seamstress? That's not a man's job. Fucking snowflakes. (laughs) I mean, for a start, He's portrayed as a man that can actually burst through metal. Now, how that happens, <laughs> I, I don't really know. But I think, you Dennis know, like Leary... women are born able to iron. Men are born able to burst through iron. Mm. Yeah. But Dennis Leary also rants about free speech. And... He just does some of his stand-up. Yeah, basically he does. And I think that's not a million miles away from incel culture, which says that, oh, it was just better in the old days when women just shut up and took it. Agreed. I agree with you. I do like that Sandra Bullock is the one who comes on to Sylvester Stallone. That's quite a nice twist. I mean, she doesn't know what the fuck she's doing. She does also then get knocked out by him. Yeah, to save her. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't get to do any of the big fighting. Mm. And she thanks him for it. Yeah. Now throw me to the ground almost in like some 1950s kiss bollocks. Oh, don't kiss his bollocks. We've seen no, the back we've of seen them. the back of them. They're horrible. <laughs> Terrible. They are horrible. Terrible. I mean, 
I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous because I'm going to put it out there that I I really love this film. Just it was just a real rollicking ride. Oh, and not even wrong, Sting it's... doing the title song could ruin it for me. Yeah, fucking Sting again. Uh, <laughs> wasn't it Grace Jones? It was Sting and Grace Jones. Okay. Okay, but okay, let's get to the score. How many Arnies are you giving it? Let's start with Governor of California. That is it a good film? Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's... I'm nodding. I'm nodding. <laughs> It's it's hilarious in it's not necessarily intentionally hilarious. I actually think you could see loads of hot fuzz in this, loads of it. That's not a bad thing mm-hmm. if it went on to inspire Edgar Wright. Edgar Simon Wright, Pink yeah. I, any film in which people talk while fighting, punches someone in the face, and how did you know the password? <laughs> it's just nobody <laughs> talks while fighting like that. It's just funny. So I'm going to say, as in, if you want to watch it, when you're really... Like, it's pissing a rain. It's literally hammering the rain where we are now. And if I wanted to not leave the house and I wanted to do something, Demolition Man would fill a couple of hours. Had me at the back of the balls. And it would be entertaining (laughs) for me. So I'm going to say, for Varys Biggins alone, three. I'm holding up five fingers. I think it deserved a four. I think it's a four. What about in terms of... If he bleeds, we can kill it. From South African Arnie. South African Arnie. <laughs> oh, dear. As in, what does it say about the future? I mean, it's kind of fun, isn't it? In that it gets some stuff reasonably right, oddly. Um, it treats women like crap. But, you know... We're just invisible. We're just not there. <sighs> yeah, maybe uh, maybe a two. They do have sex headphones, though. Yeah. So next week, I was thinking we could actually watch something a bit more earnest. Okay. I thought, am I allowed to just watch Demolition Man again? <laughs> you, you, Mick, don't let me stop you. <laughs> but what are we actually going to watch? I thought we might watch 1984. You know, the thing that literally everybody says, oh my God, it's so 1984. Yeah, an actual, dy- like, the dystopia that started dystopias. Yes. Yeah, let's do it. It's John Hurt, isn't it? It is. I practice my, um, what's it, Newspeak. Mm. Yeah. Be well. <laughs> you fucked. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.